Welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. My name is Courtney Small. I write about film for several publications, including ThatShelf.com, where the show is hosted, and Cinema Access, to name a few. I'm also the co-host of the podcast Frameline. Today, I'm joined by film critic Victor Stiff. Victor is the associate editor and senior critic at That Shelf, and he has written for numerous publications, Playlists, POV Magazine, Film School Rejects, In the Seats, and Screen Rant, to name a few. There's a whole bunch more because Victor is a prolific and fantastic writer. In 2019, he was the recipient of the Toronto Film Critics Association's Emerging Critic Award. Victor, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Our main film for today is the 2020 comedy, The 40-Year-Old Version, directed by Radha Lank. The film is a semi-autobiographical tale that focuses on Radha, a playwright who is approaching 40 and finds her career in a bit of a rut. Looking to reinvent herself, she decides to pursue a rap career under the moniker Rodimus Prime. Victor, do you want to kick us off with some of your initial thoughts on this film? Well, I watch about two to 300 films a year. And I actually saw the 40-year-old version back at Sundance in January, and it set such a high bar that I don't know if any films really crossed it so far. Definitely in my top two films of the year. It left a, a big impression on me, and it's as much as I'm trying to like binge and get through TV shows and series, I could not wait for it to drop in October so I could watch it again. This was my first time watching it, and it kind of came on my radar based off of uh, a review that you wrote. I'm very glad that you brought this one to my attention because I was absolutely delighted by it. It's a film that's very amusing, but I found it hit deep for me personally, which I wasn't anticipating. And I think maybe because I'm in that age bracket that this film is really focusing on. So I kind of identified with some of the the themes in, in the film. You know, to kick us off, I want to talk about one of the central themes, and that's the expectations of, of aging because you have Rada who was the recipient of the 30 under 30 playwright award which you know she still holds as a badge of honor and it was supposed to be the I guess the award that propels her career and it, it didn't quite work out that way and this film has a lot to say about the goals that we set for ourselves and how you know many of us assume that we should have life figured out by age 40 and that isn't the case so I just want to know what, what were your thoughts on how the film tackles the theme of aging and how we, we view where we should be in life. I think it's even a little bit more broad, broader than that. I think it's really tackling a success and how we define success because this is a story, like first off, it's just flat out entertaining on any level. You can just watch it as a popcorn flick and have a blast all the way through, but she's really talk, tackling a lot of very interesting themes. And, and the one on success is if you look at her life, if you, if you just stand back and look at the life she's living, she's an artist, she's a pillar of the community, she's talented and she has this group of students who absolutely adore her and and she has a friend Archie who is just she can mess up in the worst way and he's always going to have her back and you have all these people who are really propping her up and just she's the apple of their eye but she doesn't see herself as successful because she has this very narrow definition of what success is right so it's it's really a film about kind of uh, broadening the scope and, and redefining like what it is to be successful but this is a, a conversation we particularly have when we reach the age of 30 and 40 you know these these monumental times in life when you kind of stop and reevaluate everything around you. When you talk about how she defines success, and I was thinking back to some of the things you were saying, it's like, yeah, you know what? She is adored by a lot of people. There are students who value what she brings when she's, when she's teaching. Depending on which circle she's in, she still doesn't see herself as being a true success. And I feel like in many ways, that's kind of conditioned into all of us. We're, a lot of us are chasing a certain ideal, a certain 
notion of success because there's a point in this film where to a certain level she's made it but she hasn't made it in a way that is satisfying to her and Archie even calls her out on on being a a sellout to achieve the dream which she vehemently denies but when looking back she did kind of sell part of herself to achieve a goal that she wanted. And now that she's there, she realized that wasn't the right thing to do. So it's a very interesting look at, at success. Well, if you take it a step further, it's really interrogating what it means for a Black artist to find success in white spaces. You know, this just reminded me of the Green Book argument from a few years ago, whereas Green Book is a very watered down, safe, feel-good movie about race relations. And then you have Barry Jenkins, James Baldwin adaptation, If Beale Street Could Talk, which is like this really emotionally raw. It doesn't leave you walking out of the theater feeling good. It's a better story all around, better performances, the cinematography, the score is on another level. But people want Green Book. And this is about an artist having to choose between, am I going to find success making Green Book or If Beale Street Could Talk? There's a, a running theme about cultural gatekeeping that happens in this film. And, you know, as a struggling playwright, she at one point kind of has to grovel at the hands of one of the elite's producers to get play done. And you see her go to this party where it's the who's who of the theater world and it's predominantly white. Pretty much her and Archie are the only people of color. The themes about gatekeeping runs a lot through this film because she makes a lot of references to poverty porn and how that's what people want to see. And it really made me think of not only Green Book, but Antebellum and, you know, Oscar So White and there's the type of stories that people of color are quote unquote supposed to tell that make predominantly white audiences or white industry execs feel comfortable. I know I think this film does a really good job of of pointing it out in a way that is digestible for all audiences. She she's blunt about calling these themes out, but I think through the use of comedy, it allows those people that are very much I would say like in the green book mindset to to understand it as well. Yeah, it's blunt, but it doesn't feel preachy either. I think she just hits this perfect tonal sweet spot to not offend the people she's trying to make the point to. Just the fact that she was able to get this film made, as, as much as I love this film, I wonder if Netflix didn't scoop it up, would we be able to get a wide distribution for this film? Because we're in an age where, especially in 2020 now, people are starting to think broader about representation, but I feel like the steps are, are still very minimal. A lot of people in the art world are very much, yes, diversity, diversity, and then and a few months later, we've completely forgotten about that. I wonder if you had a major studio take this, what would they do with it? Would it have been shelved or would it have you know, been given that one theater run? Yeah, there's, there's no way they're going to market this to a wide audience. I don't have the number in front of me, but I think of like the, the top earning films last year, only like 6% of them had a female lead above 40. They're just not making movies about middle-aged women. It's either you're the, the young hot thing or you're the mom. There's like no middle tier. What's fascinating about this film is you have a 40-year-old woman and she She's the object of desire. Like there's several men pursuing her through the movie and she doesn't define herself by uh, having to be in a relationship either. Like everything is on her terms. And I really appreciated that as well because when I was thinking about the, the last couple of films that I've seen about women over 40, all been white women, the love story is the, the driving factor, you know, that kind of helps recharge their career. Whereas in this film, I like that we get to see a woman approaching 40 who's a woman of color, but she doesn't have to be perfect. Like she's got a bunch of people pursuing her romantically of, of various ages but she's got her own problems you know she's got her insecurities and she's also having to deal with everyone's interpretations of her like you hear everyone from like the homeless guy across the street to the woman on the block all have a view of how she should be and you know where her her life should be going professionally and romantically so she's a, a complex character that we don't normally get to see in these type of films yeah i would actually 
call this a coming of middle age dramedy, right? Because it is a coming of age story. Yeah, yeah, that is that is very true. And what did you think about how Rada interacts with a lot of the characters? Because I think one of the things I liked about her is for all her great point, her drive, her talent, her creativity, her, her skills of being a rapper, she also is allowed to be flawed. Like she, you know, at the beginning, you find out that she could be a tad selfish, you know, not wanting the bus to stop to help people who are, are disabled because it's slowing her down. You know, she she makes a lot of assumptions about people that aren't necessarily correct. And I'm thinking especially about her interactions with producer D and how she assumes a lot about him that he wouldn't know who Coltrane is, that he hasn't seen like Hamilton or other theater productions. It's a very interesting way that they portrayed her. Well, a big problem a lot of up and coming screenwriters have is when they're creating a character, it's whether they admit it or not, it's based on their life. Great drama comes from people just being put through the grinder and like just having life throw the worst things at them and they don't want to do it to the characters they love them too much so when you have someone like Rada playing a version of herself it's a very brave decision to portray herself as a dick and one of the reasons this movie is so funny is she's very she's self-effacing too she's not afraid to be the butt of the joke so she's not trying to prop herself up as so much as you know she's a bit of a bumbler with a little bit of a larry david vibe yeah definitely and and also what i like about it is she can be that but also you still get the sense that it's a deeply personal tale from what i've researched it sounds like stuff with her mother passing away that occurred like when this this whole production was originally supposed to be a web series Mm-hmm. And then her mother passed filming the second episode and that kind of put her in a rut and kind of changed her focus. You kind of get that sense throughout this film because there's a lot of talk of grief that goes on and there's a, a recurring theme about she's encountering a lot of people whose mothers have passed away. But you also see her real brother in the yes. film and the artwork when she's at her mother's house is actually her real mother's artwork and the music playing in that scene is her real father's music like you know when she talks about coming from a long line of struggling artists, it doesn't come across in that hollywood romanticized way yeah and they even throw in the family photos too like what's more personal than that yeah exactly and it just it brings you into a certain layer of this film that you wouldn't expect if you were just judging by the almost joke a minute delivery of the beginning of the film yeah she she doesn't even refer to this movie as a comedy i i think it's hard to not see it as at least a dramedy but it just tells you how personal it is and how she was coming from a very raw perspective uh, no matter how you cut it it's a very earnest story and i want to ask you what you thought about the theme of art in this film and almost the way how it kind of soothes the soul because theater is very very much something that drives her it gives her life but she really comes alive when she starts rekindling that love for hip-hop when she is coming up with rhymes or performing you see like a certain light in her eyes that only comes from when you're really doing something that you you love and i just want to know especially being film critics we love art art still finds somehow a way of making sense of craziness and giving you hope in situations where you you feel like hope might be lost oh i 100 percent agree i think what's notable here is that her being a rapper is the B-plot of the story. Like any other film would be about this woman discovering rap and pursuing some sort of rap career. That's just a kind of thing she does in the background. During her acceptance speech, she said it's it's more of a meditation. She referred to rap as a meditation and it's a way to just kind of balance yourself so that you can go back out in the world and feel like your batteries are charged and then go do what you do. Um, I thought that was a really interesting choice because even even from the trailers, you, you think this is going to be some quirky movie about a, a middle-aged rapper, but it's really not that. I actually like that notion of it being a, a meditation because it also felt in this film that rap music was one of the last messages where you can kind of control the art you can control how it's made you can control its distribution i think of how the hip-hop world is portrayed in this film and not even glamorized it's just kind of artists coming together and 
one of my favorite moments is actually when she goes to the the battle rap tournament and she just gets to watch a bunch of women battle each other and it's not sexualized it's, not, it's just women who have skills going at one another and i thought that was quite interesting and even how they try to incorporate the notion of hip-hop is still a predominantly male dominated industry but there's a lot of great women who are breaking the mole and even um producer d he seems more interested in finding fresh voices that can tell stories. And those are female voices. It's it's definitely a romanticized version of hip hop. And when you just throw in the, the black and white cinematography and the sense of community, it, it really does create this, you know, this family where one tribe together kind of feeling. And to even go further than that, you know, hip hop, mainstream hip hop is known for putting out party records and being loud and full of energy and full of braggadocio. But in rap, there's always been two schools. There's like the mainstream rap and then there's the what you would call backpack rap or conscious hip-hop which would be more like uh people like tribe called quest where they would just be like spitting verses about you know uplifting the community and being educated and you know rada comes from that era she's like a backpack rapper and you know you can really appreciate like the music they chose and the beats they used are beats that backpack rappers would be into and, and backpack rappers always had they exist in this little bubble outside of all the other rappers, right? They're, they're the ones shaking their fist at like the young kids saying, this isn't rap music. And it's just so fitting that a 40-year-old woman would be on into this specific era of hip-hop music. As a Tribe Called Quest fan, I was gleefully delighted when they used relaxation and the opening credits. And considering that that song, it's one of my favorite songs but in general, but also that video is done in black and white. And you're using that song to introduce a film that is done predominantly in black and white. And even just the way how... The the music and the visuals kind of present a different flavor of New York. As you said, the sense of, of community, which a lot of films that romanticize the city don't always bring. It also helps that they shot it on film as well, 35 millimeter film. And it just adds this like texture and this grittiness to the film. It just, it, it's moving art. And what did you think of the choice moments of color in this film? Because there's the photos, but also when she's talking about the play that she wants to build and she's pitching the idea. I think that was the only other time that we saw moments of color. And when we actually see the play portrayed in the film, it's, it's done in black and white. Well, actually at the very end of the film with her and Dee walking down the street, if you look off into the periphery, some, some spots of color in the real world it's like they're walking off into this happy ending oh i didn't even notice that one okay i'm gonna have to check that on the on the rewatch yeah it's like you know when you think of things and you envision them in your mind it's not like we have a vhs recorder that's trapping these memories we reconstruct them and we think of them over and over and it's sometimes that the way you remember things is just so much more powerful and vivid than the way it actually was and i think of you know thinking of a sentimental time or your childhood is just everything just seems so much more powerful. And I thought it was a great metaphor when you're talking about art and the thing you love and, and your passion to see these little spots of color in a black and white film. And in this film, the one complaint I have, and it's a, it's a minor one, but I felt the film runs a, a little long only because I didn't feel like all the supporting characters got flushed out as well as they could have. And I was thinking specifically students that she's, she's working with because there's this whole subplot involving Elena and Rosa and, and their conflict elena and rosa specifically have a disagreement at the beginning that gets wrapped up i think a little too neatly but it just it wasn't quite earned yeah i would say it's a little bit rushed the kids are they're so charismatic and it's so much fun to be in the classroom watching them bounce off of each other again like 
that could have been its own movie, some sort of rapper version of Dangerous Minds. Mm -hmm. um, so I would have liked it to have paid off better where we just have one scene with them all together, kind of capping it off. But, you know, got to keep it to two hours. You can't fit everything in there. You got to kill your darlings in the editing room. I really liked how she developed the the character of, of D. He's a man of few words, but he's just a generally good guy. <laughs> you know, he's the one that's constantly kind of trying to keep her in check about what her priorities are in terms of her art and what's quote-unquote true representation. I, th I think that character really ties into the film's overall theme of, of defining redefining success, right? Because he's into her from the beginning. Like he has one line where it's like, I sent you 300 text messages and I don't even text anybody, but she's not on his wavelength. Like she doesn't recognize his love language. So just like she doesn't recognize her own success and how, how much she's loved and supported, she can't really see she has this great guy who's into her because she's not, she's not viewing the world on those terms. And if you think of like her last moment together, like what does he do? He buys her a bag of chips. And it, that just kind of encapsulates he's watching her he understands her he's not going to come out and make these big shows of affection for him like putting time into a beat working with her like that's the ultimate form of love and they have to meet in the middle in terms of how they express themselves yeah and i love that gypsy and I, I thought it was like one of the most romantic moments of, of cinema that i saw this year and again that's because as you eloquent pointed out he pays attention he sees her for who she really is it's a very interesting dynamic because even when she bombs at her first show he's the one that's like that happened let's move on you know he's constantly putting her back in the the right frame of mind that she needs to be even if she doesn't want to necessarily hear it at the time yeah and, and just what a great performance by uh oswin benjamin too because Again, he's a man of few words. He he gets so much across with just a look or a nod of the head. Like I again, I keep saying this, but there's so many aspects of this movie. I'd be down to see Rada in a, just a movie that's a romantic comedy. Like I'm glad this movie isn't about her finding a man, but if the movie was about those two, will they won't they? Like I'd buy a ticket opening day. Yeah, I completely agree. And what did you think of the relationship with her best friend since childhood, Archie? Because that's another one where they each tell each other truths that the other needs to hear. But at the same time, they also have a working relationship, which complicates things. I think we all need at least one Archie in our life. That person who's going to tell us what we need to hear, even when we don't want to hear it. I like where they ended up. Like the overall message was at the same time, they decided they had to have like a conscious uncoupling as business partners, right? One said you're fired and the other one said I quit at the same time. So there's just so much kindness in the writing. No one was dumping on the other character. It was, we both feel this, let's just get it off our chest. I, again, I thought that was a very interesting character. He had his own interior life going on in the background with like, you know, is he going to get away to Greece with this guy? And Rada's not kind of giving him the attention that he's giving her. But uh, I, I, I'd be down to spend more time with that character, but I feel like we get just enough of it. Like it, it wasn't like the students where it left a little bit of a thread dangling where I wanted to see some more resolution. I felt satisfied with the Archie storyline. And I also like that he's a character that pushes back because when she calls him out for basically pushing to get her play made, she says it's a lot of it is you're doing this to help further your career because at the same time, you also have a vested interest in getting into these type of spaces. And I, I like that he's able to, to push back and say that, you know, that what we have from a business standpoint is, is mutual. And even when she, you know, calls him out for quote unquote, not being Korean enough, he's quickly there to, to challenge that perception as well. And, you know, it, it makes a good commentary also on, on film in general and a lot of the themes that happen in this film because she calls him out for quote-unquote not being Korean enough and her plays get called out for not being quote-unquote black enough and it's again this whole 
false perception. Korean people aren't a monolith. Black people aren't a monolith. But there's a, a, a perception that you have to be a certain way or do certain things to quote unquote represent. So I, I like that you have Archie there to to remind that, that, you know, this type of rhetoric kind of goes both ways. Yeah. In a lesser film, that character would be far more one dimensional. He wouldn't be someone who pushes back. And that incident is really just uh, Rada expressing her own insecurity and projecting them onto him. And um, they kind of play with that notion of like that best friend who always has the good advice where they kind of do a fake out and she gives the homeless man the sandwich. And he's like, am I supposed to be that, you know, the, the magical <laughs> Negro just solves your problems. If it wasn't the, the old man, it would have been Archie in another movie. I love that moment because I really did think that the homeless guy was going to give some sage bit of wisdom because you get the sense that she spent a good amount of time telling her whole life story and all the problems to him. And, and he shows up in the whole movie. Like, why does this guy keep popping up? He shows up, the older woman in the, the neighborhood. I thought she was also going to have a moment where she realizes that, you know, Rada's trying to follow her dreams. But nope, she, I like that these characters are who they are from the beginning. Yeah, it just feels so, it feels so New York, right? Those are just New Yorkers being New Yorkers. They're going to express their opinion. They're going to be loud and brash. And if you don't like it, that's your problem. Apparently the whole community knew of this uh, rap incident where she basically got a little high before her performance and choked on stage. And, you know, you even had like the grocery store shopkeeper coming down on her. And just, I just like that this whole community knows of all of her bad moments. Yeah, I love that the high school kids are like walking through the hall, you know, talking about her messing up at this club and calling her frozen yogurt. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a, a really well-written film. But I want to ask you also about the play itself, Harlem Ave or Harlem Avenue, as it's officially presented. What did you think of that portrayal? Because, you know, the whole notion of gentrification is it's a real problem. But as we've frequently seen in cinema, it gets portrayed in different ways, depending on what I guess who the filmmakers are. And in this particular production, she wanted a black female director. She ends up with a white one. They have to, quote unquote, blacken up the students by giving them like a hip hop number. They basically try to turn it into Hamilton right. in, in many ways. And it, it got me thinking of something that Naveed Diggs said about Hamilton before it got shown on Disney Plus and how for the longest time, you know, what they did out of love and art kind of became a, a status symbol for, for the elite and in many ways, you see the people who are jiving to the, the play the most are that affluent, older, white demographic. And to them, it's giving them everything that they know of, of Harlem and gentrification, but done in a way where they are not the villains, but the ones who unify even as they are, are gentrifying. And I just wanted to know what, you, what your thoughts were of, of those scenes. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a form of virtue signaling. You're showing that you're one of the good ones and, and you're on the right side of history. But race, like race is a big problem. It's uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. And in order to solve it, you have to have difficult conversations. And nobody wants to have those difficult conversations. You don't want anyone to talk about like, you know, these institutions, institutional legacy of racism. It's much easier to go and see this film about how people in a bodega can get away or get along with the people opening up the Starbucks next door. But just, just watching that as ridiculous and over the top as, as this play seems to be like, wasn't there a story this year where uh, an executive at Sony or somewhere wanted to like cast uh, Julia Roberts as Harriet Tubman in the yep. early nineties. So like the conversations do happen. This is, this is a thing that really happens out there in, in the screenwriting world. I feel that we're going to hear even more of those stories. Like I, I feel 
even though there is a, a push for inclusion and diversity, there's also an equally, if not larger, pushback against it. I don't know about your perspective you know, as a film critic, but there are people who were fine with the way things were before. And they sometimes feel like, oh, well, you guys got whatever. You got a film about Harriet Tubman. Good. You know, we have reached equality. Now let's go back to the way things were. And as we were recording this, we're now at a, in a season where all the quote-unquote Hallmark movies come out. And oh, yeah. this, this year, we've, we've noticed there's been a lot more ads for films that have quote-unquote more diverse casting. But then when you actually watch these films, you're realizing, well, it's not really that diverse. You know, you might have thrown one person of color in as the lead, but everyone else in the world that they interact with are white or the sidekick character that has a few more lines than they would have had two years ago. But, you know, the, that type of the change isn't really happening as swiftly because, as you said, people still are holding on to old, old ways of what film, theater, et cetera, should be. Yeah. I mean, just look at Spider-Man. It has one of the most diverse casts. You know, he's attracted to a black teenager or two black teenagers. His friend is uh, Asian-American. Uh, there's high school has it looks like a real high school with just all these diverse types of people going through the halls. But the main character is always going to be the white guy, right? It's it's you start from that point and then you let everything else trickle in at the periphery. It is it is a bit frustrating. I remember too when the whole Sony leaks happened, they they had adamantly said that Spider Man should always be a straight and white. You have a film like Into the Spider Verse where mm-hmm. it was a huge hit. I would argue is probably the best. Spider-Man movie that has come out just in terms of overall entertainment, fun factor, whatnot. But even the notion of getting a live action Miles Morales movie feels like it might come eventually, but there's so many hoops to go through. Like we had Black Panther, but Black Panther got introduced in a Captain America film in a movie where Spider-Man was also being introduced. So he was kind of like the the third tier of, uh, of important figures in that film. And then you saw how big that movie blew up, right? Like It's it's really a chicken or an egg thing because they, they always say people in Hollywood, the only color they care about is green. And if they believe that a film headlined by a, a black or Latino actor would make money, they would probably do it. I, I think the things we really have to look at is um, when did the, the Force Awakens come out? 2014, 2015? Uh, the first time you see the trailer and Finn is a stormtrooper and he takes off his helmet and you see a black guy under there, the internet lost its mind. Uh, in the Hunger Games, you know, the character, I believe her name was Rue. They cast a young black child to play Rue. Internet lost its mind. People protesting, like, this is not the character we want. That wasn't a long time ago. You know, like, Force Awakens was like 2015. And people are like openly going on Twitter and YouTube and, and protesting having a black stormtrooper. You know, like, how are they going to feel about a black Superman? A studio has to be very brave and uh, willing to uh, lose some money to set a precedent. Yeah, but I, I even wonder if in this era, the whole losing money is even a worthy argument anymore, because you know we acknowledge that a film like the 40-year-old version would not, given the proper release that it deserves in, in normal times, just because there's this notion that, oh, there's not a market for it. But clearly there is. If you, you know, when you see this film, people are going to love it. Like it's, it's a great film. A lot of the times we have seen films get either pushed aside or the notion that, well, you know, Hollywood is governed by dollar value. But then you have the Fast and Furious franchise. You got Black Panther. You there's constant there's constant examples of films not only playing well in America, but in the Asian markets, which they really care about 
making mad money but yet you can have a film like suicide squad make money but be terrible and they're still making a sequel so this this kind of speaks to the difference between like racism and bias and prejudice right because people are always very quick to be like i'm not a racist i have a black friend i like black black movies but it's it's like these perceptions we're not aware of that we have so mm-hmm. if um i don't know like tarantino puts out a movie like django and it bombs at the box office they're like that's because it's a black movie and they kind of discount the 10 i don't know Tyler Perry movies that quadrupled their budget. And then, but with a white artist, you know, Liam Neeson puts out a bomb or uh, Taylor Kitsch, how many hundred million dollar bombs did he drop? And they just keep getting more opportunities, right? It's, it's, it's yeah. they're not, not getting the same push or they're not allowed to fail like uh, films from white filmmakers are. And I, and I think part of this also goes even deeper in terms of the cultural canons that we're being taught and the, the canons that filmmakers are being taught in film school because even when you read reviews and you know this as a film critic there's certain times where you will champion a film and then you will read a review by you know a prominent critic and they basically try to make it sound like it's an affirmative action type of film people only like it because it has a woman of color in it you just see those layers of bias so a film like this comes along and you know i really identify with the conflict that rada is going through and you know trying to break through in in a system that is so myopic in in its view well just think what would it take for this film to become a criterion collection movie does that world even exist uh the new york times did an incredible article a few months back just about how few black films are in the criterion film canon it's, it's crushing Lilo. It's a very good article, but what shocked me more was the response to it because it was an article that I read and I went, yep, that's pretty much, I could have told you that just by looking at this criteria list and seeing what they release every month. But there were so many people that were, were shocked, like they had never realized this before. And again, because yeah. if you're not really thinking of inclusion and diversity as a everyday kind of thing, to you, the world is great. It's just about understanding that there's a lot of systems that are not equal and i would love for this film to be part of the criterion because i know what i think roma and irishman the irishman yes they've both released by netflix and they both got criterion treatment and this film i think deserves criterion treatment if anything this would have fit what my version of criterion is we do need we do need platforms like the criterion collection to do a better job spotlighting diverse cinema right because if you just think of the origins like the starting point of cinema you know this month or last month we had a great film by sofia coppola come out And she's one of the most respected, most accomplished directors working today. Look who her father is, Francis Ford Coppola, like film icon. He got a start in the 60s and 70s, you know, like rubbing elbows with Scorsese and Spielberg. And he could take all that knowledge, all those contacts, all his success and pass it along to his daughter. What black filmmaker has this opportunity? Like if Mm -hmm. my father tried to go to film school in the 60s, like he wasn't, he was segregated in St. Catharines, Canada you know, getting his education, like, how is he going to become a filmmaker? So it's like, yes, our society isn't as blatantly racist as it was 30, 40 years ago, but it's everyone got such a big head start. There cannot be, unless you're the son of, I don't know, a famous, like how many famous black actors did we have in the 60s? It was like Sidney Poitier and no one else. So maybe Mm -hmm. his kid or Harry Belafonte's kid would have a head start, but you have 50, 60, 70 white filmmakers for every one black filmmaker. And it's just, like the, the pipeline's bottlenecked. So in 2020, you have to give a platform to the next Rada Blank so that she can get a start. And then 30 years from now, she can be the one like passing the torch to someone else. They roll their eyes and they huff when they all hear about all this inclusion, but this is exactly why. And, you know, Sofia Coppola is a, is a perfect example. 
I, when you're talking about Sidney Poitier, I was thinking about Denzel in the 90s. He was like the go-to actor when you needed a person of color. But even then, he couldn't be in interracial um, relationships on screen. You know, you had Mississippi Masala, but that was also with a woman of color. You know, I think it was Flight was the first film. And when he made Flight, he was what, already in his 60s? Yeah, he was about 62, I think. Yeah, that was the first time that he got to have, he could be in a film where he could have consensual sexual relations with non-person of color. Yeah, same with Will Smith. It's always a Latina. Those are superstars that can open films, can have a failure and still get work. You look at, well, who's the pipeline? Spike Lee has tried to produce and you know, create space for uh, people of color. But at the same time, he's also endured a lot of knocks on his career about him being mm-hmm. too militant, too black, films not being diverse enough, even though he's continually making different types of films. Yeah, he'd be a lot further ahead if he made more Harlem Avenues. Ava DuVernay is doing a great job with her array entertainment. Yes. Yeah. And that's a that's a perfect example. You know, but even with DuVernay, you know, the stuff that she's producing is is great. Are Criterion listening? Or are other people really paying attention to that, though? That's the, you know, are those films being taught in film school? I wouldn't hold my breath. Ideally, that's the the goal. So when when people keep hearing about oh diversity representation, why not? This is what we're talking about. We're talking about expanding it to the point where it becomes natural, and you don't have to think about it. If I don't have to think about Colin Trevorrow making one film and then getting like Jurassic Park, you know, mm-hmm. I should be able to watch Rada Blank do give me the forty year old version and then do whatever she wants. Shout out to Chloe Zhao making the Eternals after her very small movies too. That's a step in the right direction. Somebody needs to give, like, as much as I enjoy this movie, I would love to see Rada as the star of her own TV series. Like, that would just be a treasure. This one film gives you so much that I feel you could give her anything and she will turn it into gold. She could give me, you know, a heart-wrenching family drama, historical drama, what have you. And I would believe that she'd be able to kill it. You know, she'd be able to do comedy at we, we don't know if she'd be a great action filmmaker, but there's nothing in this that she can't. Yeah, comedy does not get the respect it deserves. You know, there's a lot of great com- comedy actors who can do drama, and there's a lot of great dramatic actors who cannot do comedy. Victor, thank you very much for coming on the show. Where can listeners find you? You can find all my work on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I tweet everything out at Victor J. Stiff on Twitter. And in the next few weeks, I'm really excited to be working on a project. It's going to be on my YouTube channel, and I'm calling it Dope Black Movies. Ooh, sounds very interesting. All right, I'm looking forward to that. Listeners, you can contact me on Twitter at Small Mind, or you can reach the show on Twitter at Changing Reels AC. Thank you very much for listening. And remember, you can change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time.